Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to see you guys today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we'll get there here in just a bit. Uh, Before we get into it this morning, I just wanted to say a couple things uh, on the topic of masks, Uh, one serious and then one not so serious, hopefully that's okay. Um, The first thing I wanted to say, um, and this is just on a very genuine note to to you guys that have been around our church family for a while, uh, wanted to thank you all for your uh, agreeableness uh, over the past year as we've worn masks. Um, I know that's not everybody's preference. I know there was a little bit of time, especially when it was colder outside and we had the heat on in the balcony, that some of you who wore a mask up in the balcony legitimately felt like you were suffocating. And you're not wrong in thinking that. Uh, It was actually really hot up there. But overall, you guys have just been fantastic about understanding that even if you personally felt like you didn't need a mask for whatever reason, even if that was the case, you guys have just been more than willing uh, to do that because you're going, okay, what, it, what's the big deal about something over my face? If that helps other people feel more comfortable, if that helps other people feel welcome, I will gladly do that. That is a very, very small way for me to put the needs and the desires of somebody else above myself. So I just wanted to thank you guys for that. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this. This is something we're aware of because we're sort of in pastor world out in our city. Uh, we talk to other pastors in Knoxville all the time and kind of throughout the past year, you know, they, they will get together and they just, they're having a hard time because it just felt like every decision they made in regards to mask and social distancing and opening and reopening, not opening, all of that, uh, they just felt like they couldn't do anything right. It was like if they made this decision, this group of people left their church. If they made that decision, that group of people left their church. And so every time we've gotten together with other pastors in our city and they've just been like, man, it's just uh, it's such a difficult season to be a pastor. Our pastors at City Church have just been like, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. And, and it's just you guys in general, whether, whether you lean right politically, left politically, any of that, you guys have just been like, yeah, what's the big deal? If it means we get to gather together as God's people, I will wear a mask over my face. That's totally fine uh, with me. And so I just wanted to thank you guys for that. Uh, just in general, you, you guys may know this, you may not. Uh, sometimes church people don't have a reputation for being the most agreeable sorts of people. I don't know if you've ever heard that at all. Uh, you guys in general, I think, buck the trend on that. And you guys have just been great through this whole thing. So while I am very, very thankful to see your faces, uh, I wanted to thank you guys for just your attitude over the past year. It's just been incredible. Uh, One of the reasons that makes us really, really thankful and blessed to be your pastors. So thank you for that. That's the serious one. Uh, the, The not so serious one, but something that I wanted to communicate to you nonetheless, is that here's the thing about not wearing masks, is that now, if you have RBF while I'm teaching, I can see it. Do you know what I mean? And a, a resting bad face, hopefully you guys are aware of what RBF stands for. 
Um, but I just wanted to let you know, like I can see you in the same way that you can see me up here, I can now see you and there are no masks. So all I'm saying is if you wanted to occasionally, you know, say amen or smile or huh, or just something to let me know that you're aware that something is happening up here, you are welcome to do that. We've got like a section of people in our church that very much do that on a regular basis. And then the rest of you guys, I'm just like, I don't know. They might really like the teaching. They might absolutely hate it. I wouldn't know because their face doesn't tell me one way or the other. Uh, so just for you to know, I can see you now. We can participate in this together. Is that cool? Are y'all down with that? Okay. Cool. So I'll just assume you get that and they'll just be amens every 10 seconds for the rest of today. Cool. All right. So thank you. That was great. All right. So that being said, today we are in Matthew chapter 11. If you are new to our church, uh, we are in the middle of really a multiple year series through the book of Matthew in the Bible. If you're new to church in general, essentially Matthew is this early biography of the life of Jesus. We get four of them in our New Testament Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is one of those biographies of Jesus's life. Now, if you, as you may have noticed from the different colored bulletin that was on your seat on your way in, today we are beginning a new section of the book of Matthew that we have just titled Responses to the Kingdom. That's what we're calling it. Essentially, in chapters 11 through 13 of Matthew's gospel, the focus begins to be about how different people react and respond to the news of God's inbreaking kingdom. That's what these chapters are largely about, how they respond in a nutshell to Jesus and the message that he announces. And I think in each of these responses that we're going to see over the next couple months or so, we get a window, we get a glimpse into the often controversial nature of the kingdom of God. And in many cases, I think we see in all of these people's responses, maybe reflections of or versions of our own responses to the kingdom of God. I think we can see some of us in their reactions to it. I think it can serve as a mirror of sorts into our own hearts at times when it comes to following Jesus. And I think that's certainly the case in today's passage. So today we're going to focus on John the Baptist's response to the kingdom of God. That's kind of who this passage centers around, is a guy named John the Baptist. It centers around a, a question that John asks of Jesus and behind that question, I think, is an experience that at least a lot of us can identify with if we've been following Jesus for very long at all. So that's what I want us to take a look at today. Let's look at chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah... He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one to come? Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Let's stop right there for just a second. So if you were around when we first began our Matthew series early last fall, that's where we were first introduced to this guy known in the Bible as John the Baptist. So there, he was this somewhat eccentric, prophetic figure who lived out in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey, and he wore nothing but a jacket made out of camel's hair 
which are some very specific lifestyle choices to make, right? He was a very unique character in the New Testament. But then, back in Matthew chapter 3, he was out in the wilderness doing ministry. Where we run into him now in this passage, he's actually in prison. So we find out a few chapters later in Matthew why he's in prison at this time, but it wasn't actually for doing anything wrong. It was for calling out the moral corruption of a particular political leader of his day. That's why he was in prison. He did that, that ruler threw him in prison as a result. But while he's there, he hears about the types of things that Jesus is doing. Jesus is healing the sick, he's raising the dead, he's cleansing lepers, he's casting out demons, all these sorts of things that Jesus' ministry consisted of. He hears about all of that, and it prompts a question in John the Baptist about Jesus' identity. He has a question for Jesus, and his question is this, Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we be expecting someone else? Now that language, the one who is to come, was a way of referring to a figure that Israelites knew as the Messiah. The Messiah was sort of this king-like figure who was going to show up on the scene. He was going to set things right for the nation of Israel. He was going to execute justice on their oppressors, and he was going to usher in the kingdom of God. That's who the Messiah was supposed to be. So obviously, there was all sorts of anticipation in the Jewish people around who that figure would be exactly and when he would show up. So John wants to know if Jesus is indeed that figure, if Jesus is the Messiah, or if they should be waiting on somebody else to be that figure. Now, here's what's interesting to me personally about John asking that question. This is the same John who was born as a miracle baby based on a fulfillment of prophecy to a woman who was well past childbearing years. So his, his birth was miraculous. This is the same John who we read leapt in his mother's womb when Mary came nearby and she was pregnant with Jesus. Literally, John leapt in the womb in that moment. This is the same John who was physically present in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open up above them, and a, an audible voice from heaven speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is the same John who says about Jesus and his ministry at one point, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. My point being that John is not exactly sitting on a lack of evidence or experiences that point to Jesus' legitimacy as the Messiah, right? He's got plenty of experiences that point in that direction. He's probably had more experiences firsthand with the divine than most of us today ever will. And yet, still at this point in the story, he is experiencing uncertainty about Jesus' identity, about whether or not Jesus is truly the Messiah. So we could call that doubt, we could call that skepticism or cynicism, but bare minimum, this is uncertainty about Jesus from John. Do you guys see that in the story? Now, I bring that up in part, at least, because there is this really popular myth floating around the church that if you have enough faith and you see God do enough undeniable things in your life, you will never experience doubt or uncertainty about following him. 
But if that's true, nobody ever told John that. Because John, here he is, a a prophet of God, a fulfillment of divine prophecy himself, and John is experiencing real, actual doubt and uncertainty about who Jesus is. So it's worth asking, what had changed for John? What changed in his life? How had he gone from relative certainty about Jesus as the Messiah to here uncertainty about it? What changed that caused that change of mind in him? I think we could probably sum it up with the phrase unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. John had expectations about who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And Jesus, at least at this point in the story, had not yet met all of those expectations that John had. There were some things that the Messiah was supposed to do that Jesus had already done, to be sure, but there were other things that the Messiah was supposed to do that Jesus had not done, at least yet. And one of the things he had not done yet was bringing judgment on those opposed to God. And you've got to think that at least some of this was personal for John. He was currently rotting in prison because of a wicked ruler who was opposed to the things of God. And it at least didn't seem like Jesus was doing anything to remedy that situation for John. So John had expectations, likely of a theological and personal variety, that Jesus was not yet meeting. And that was generating uncertainty in John about who Jesus was. It was doubt but it was doubt due to disappointment in his life. And if we could be honest, isn't this often where doubt comes from? From disappointment, from unmet expectations? You see, as much as we might like to pretend that doubt is purely intellectual and and objective in its nature, it often isn't. Or at least it doesn't start that way. I've been doing ministry for some time now. I've had the privilege of walking with quite a few people through seasons of doubt and uncertainty about the claims of Jesus. And still, I have yet to meet a person who meets Jesus, has a great experience following Jesus, has a great experience with churches and other Christians, and then one day they just read a book by a smart atheist and go, wow, I've never thought about it that way. I'm reconsidering everything now. Very rarely does it work that way. Generally, there is some type of experience or maybe a number of experiences in their life behind the doubt, behind the uncertainty about Jesus. And quite often, at least in my experience, it is an experience of disappointment. When we decide to follow Jesus, I think most of us have a picture in our heads of what following Jesus is going to look like what it's going to look and feel like, or maybe we just have a picture in our heads of what our life is going to look like as a direct result of following Jesus. Maybe we think that if we follow Jesus, our lives will go relatively well. Maybe we think he will protect us from certain types of suffering or difficulty in our life. And so we decide to follow him, and then our dad gets cancer. Our mom gets Alzheimer's. We have a close friend die tragically or die way too young and our life doesn't go like we thought it would go and that creates doubt in us. Maybe we think that if we follow Jesus 
as a result, he will eventually provide us with the perfect person to date and or marry. Then our 20s come and go, our 30s come and go, our 40s come and go, and that perfect person still hasn't showed up. God never did what we thought he would do as a result of following him. Maybe we think that if we follow Jesus, he will lead us into career success or financial stability of some sort. And then we follow Jesus, but we end up working the same dead-end job for 10, 20, 30 years. Maybe we even struggle to make ends meet financially. And it sure doesn't seem like God did the thing that we thought he would do in our lives. It leads to disappointment. And we could go on with examples, but I don't know that we have to. I think if we were just brutally honest, we all have expectations in our life that Jesus, we think, is going to meet, but they haven't gone the way that we thought they would go haven't panned out the way we thought they would pan out. And that has created disappointment, and so often disappointment is what leads to doubt. Maybe it leads to doubt right away, like as a direct result of it immediately, or maybe it just sows these tiny little seeds of doubt and uncertainty that we don't even realize are there, and then years later, they grow into something more significant in our life. But that's how it often happens in our lives, whether we are aware of it or not. Disappointment can lead to doubt and uncertainty about Jesus. And John, I would argue, is having at least some version of that experience in our passage. So he sends word to Jesus to get some clarification on who Jesus is. Is Jesus the Messiah or is he not the Messiah? So let's look at Jesus' response, verse 4 in our passage. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Okay, so basically Jesus' answer to the question, are you the Messiah, his answer is yes. But you may have missed that because he does it in sort of a roundabout, cryptic, Jesus-y sort of way, right? If you've been following with us through the Gospel of Matthew, you know that Jesus does not always answer questions in a direct way. So that's what's happening here. So the way that he answers the question from John is that he quotes from several key passages from the book of Isaiah about the types of things the Messiah would do. The blind would see, the lame would walk, the lepers would be cleansed, so on and so forth. He quotes from these passages as a way of saying, essentially, go tell John that I'm doing all the things that the Messiah was going to do. He says, go and tell John that. But there is one glaring omission from the passages that Jesus quotes. So another significant thing that Isaiah said the Messiah would do is set the prisoner free. So he would bring liberty to those who are oppressed. And in other passages where Jesus talks about himself and quotes the prophet Isaiah, he includes that line about setting the prisoner free. But here in his quote back to John, he doesn't mention that one. I mean, why not, right? It's not like Jesus just forgot that part of who he was gonna be. So why doesn't he quote that line? Why doesn't he include that line about the prisoners? Most commentators say that he leaves that line out as sort of a hidden message back to John. 
He's saying, John, I am the one that you and everyone else has been waiting for. I am indeed the Messiah, but that doesn't mean you're going to make it out of prison. And he's right. We found out later in the Gospel of Matthew that John will not make it out of prison alive. In fact, he will be beheaded while he's in there. Now, for just a second, can we just try to imagine how it would have felt to receive that response from Jesus if you're John? John has been living his entire life about the kingdom of God. He's lived out in the wilderness. He's foregone any type of creature comforts imaginable to live a life of obedience and sacrifice to God. He is now in prison for doing precisely the type of thing that God told him to do in calling out sin and speaking for God. And then Jesus sends word back to him that his life is going to end horribly as a result of all of that. Can you imagine the disappointment? The letdown in that moment, the, the frustration even in that moment. And then can you imagine how easy it would be for John to let doubt set in, an uncertainty set in about who Jesus is and about what his mission is all about. And I think that is precisely why Jesus tacks on this line at the end of what he says back to John. Take a look with me at verse six. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So to stumble in the Jewish imagination was to fall into sin or away from God because of something. To, to stumble meant that something had tripped you up in your journey with God to the point that you could no longer believe in God at all. So after communicating to John in so many words that, that Jesus is likely not going to meet all of John's expectations, Jesus says that John is blessed if he can deal with that reality. Blessed is the person who can deal with disappointment without it turning into disbelief, is what he's saying. Blessed is the one who can wrestle with doubt without being defeated by it. That's Jesus' message for John. And if you're thinking to yourself, yeah, that sounds great to wrestle with doubt without doubt defeating me, how in the world do I do that as a follower of Jesus? Let me just say you're asking the right question. We're going to get to that before we're done today. For now, I want us to keep following the story. Because what's going to happen next is that Jesus is going to stay on this topic of unmet expectations, but he's going to now talk about people's expectations of John himself. So pick it back up with me in verse 7 of the passage. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to, into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. This reads to us a little bit like a riddle. Jesus here is addressing different expectations that people had of John the Baptist. He says, when you went out into the wilderness where John was doing ministry, what exactly did you expect to find in him? Did you expect to find a reed swayed by the wind? So this was an expression that was often used to describe a person who was easily swayed by people's opinion of them. That's what that expression meant. 
But remember, at this point, John was living off the land. He was eating bugs and out of beehives, and he was wearing a camel's hair jacket. So if you're leading that kind of life, I think we can safely say that you have experienced freedom from what other people think about you, right? You may struggle with a lot of things, but fear of man is not one of them at that point. So Jesus says, nope, that, that's not what you should have expected when you went out to see John. Then he says, the next verse, okay, then what did you expect to see? Did you expect to see a man dressed in fine clothes? Also, no, I would remind you once again of the camel's hair jacket that John was wearing, right? So that's not at all who John was. That's not who you should have expected John to be either, Jesus says. So who was John supposed to be? Look at verse 9. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Bingo. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, Jesus just said a lot of things all at once. Let's try to break down a few of them so we can wrap our minds around what he's trying to say here. First, Jesus is saying that John is precisely who the scriptures said he would be. John is precisely who the scriptures said he would be. Jesus is saying to the crowds around him, John may not have been who you all expected him to be, but he was exactly who the Bible said he would be. He was a prophet. He wasn't a pushover. He wasn't some sort of pampered king disconnected from the world's problems. He was a prophet. And prophets in the Bible have a long history of being persecuted and opposed and even suffering violence because of the task and the mission that God gave them. Because at the end of the day, their job is to speak out about God and against people's sin. People tend not to like especially that second part when you do it, right? So the fact that John is now in prison for doing precisely those sort of things as a prophet ultimately shouldn't have surprised anybody, right? Because that's who he was. He was a prophet. If they were rooted and grounded in the scriptures and they had gotten their expectations from the scriptures, then John was exactly who the scriptures said he would be. He was a prophet. This is the types of things that happen to prophets, the second thing I think Jesus is highlighting, and this is maybe more of something I want us to notice from the passage, is how highly he speaks of John the Baptist. Did you notice how highly Jesus speaks of John the Baptist? He says, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now that's high praise from the Son of God, right? Notice, John may be uncertain about Jesus, but Jesus does not speak negatively about John. He, he lifts him up. He holds him up as an example for people even. But notice, that is immediately followed by this statement. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Here's what Jesus means by that. 
as great as John is, as significant as his role in the kingdom of God was, it still pales in comparison to those who will get to see the kingdom come in its fullness. Though John got to play this vital, pivotal sort of role, the most insignificant follower of Jesus who will come after John will be greater and get to see greater things than John ever did. Because in many ways, this is the end of the road for John. He's in prison, he's gonna be singled out, he's gonna be executed. This is the end for him. So I do want you to notice that as much as Jesus raves about John, it still does not change John's circumstances. Did you see that in the passage? Jesus says all these incredible things about John, all while sending word back to John that he will not make it out of prison alive. John's negative circumstances should not be misconstrued as God's disapproval of him. And God's approval of John does not mean that his circumstances will turn out like he wants them to. Do you see that tension in the passage? If I could just offer you some pastoral advice in light of that. Do not interpret the circumstances of your life as a sign of God's posture towards you. Do not interpret the circumstances in your life as a sign, as evidence of how God feels about you. Do not make the mistake of thinking that good circumstances in your life are signs of God's approval and that bad circumstances in your life are signs of God's disapproval. That simply is not how God works. So just think about it. We're talking about this in teaching team this week. Uh, things are going really well for Vladimir Putin right now. He, he's very successful, if you wanna use that term, right? I mean, everything that he wants to happen, happens, and anybody who opposes him mysteriously disappears. Things are going pretty well for him if you're just thinking about worldly success, right? Very little opposition in his life that's anything significant. And still, I don't think that means that God's approval is on him or his actions. And on the other hand, things went pretty poorly for Jesus overall in his life on earth, crucifixion and all right? And yet I think that God approved of every single thing that Jesus did. So do you see why we cannot use our circumstances as a metric of God's posture towards us? The, the world is too broken and God is too good to see life in that way. God is so much better than karma, so much better than karma. And so in this story, we see, one of the things that we see is that there is not a one-to-one -one relationship between your circumstances in life and God's posture or affections towards you. And then finally, in this passage, Jesus connects John's ministry to his own. So by calling John both the messenger who would prepare the way and also calling him the Elijah who is to come, Jesus is honoring John but also indirectly claiming that Jesus himself is the Messiah. That's what's happening in this passage. The Old Testament prophets said that before the Messiah would show up, there would be a final prophet or a final messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah's arrival. And they said that that messenger would be like Elijah or would come in the spirit, in the vein of Elijah's ministry. 
So Jesus is saying indirectly, I am the Messiah. John is that messenger, and I am the Messiah, which sets up our final few verses. Read with me in verses 16 through 19. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, a a funeral song, in other words, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. In other words, he's crazy. Verse 19, the son of man, a.k.a. Jesus himself, came eating and drinking, and they say about him, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So in describing some people's response to John the Baptist, Jesus uses this metaphor about children in the marketplace. Now, Jesus often uses children as sort of an illustration of things that he's trying to teach. Sometimes he uses them as positive illustrations, and sometimes he uses them as negative illustrations. Here, the illustration is negative. So one of the things about children, especially small children, if you've ever spent any amount of time babysitting or if you're a parent or whatever, one of the things about especially small children is that at times... They have a problem imagining a world where everyone doesn't cater to them and what they want. Have you ever experienced this about children? I have a five-year-old and an almost two-year-old. I can personally verify that this is how children think a lot of the times. So the the reality is that a a child thinks that everyone should want to play the game that they want to play, right? A, A child thinks that everyone should operate on the schedule that they personally want to operate on. That's just how children tend to think, at least when they're small. So Jesus uses that word picture, that understanding of how children often operate, and he says that's sort of like what the people of Israel are doing at this point in time. He says that they're frustrated that John isn't playing the game that they want to play, and they're frustrated that Jesus is not playing the game that they want to play. They're disappointed that John is not meeting their expectations, and they're frustrated that Jesus is not meeting their expectations. So it's almost if, and follow me here for a second, it's almost as if the problem is not with John and it's not with Jesus. It's almost as if the problem is with people's expectations of them. It's almost as if people expected these two men to be something and someone that they never claimed to be in the first place. And I wonder if you and I don't sometimes make the same mistake when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. I wonder if sometimes the reason that Jesus has not met our expectations about him is because our expectations about him are actually wrong. Because you do know the one way to be perpetually disappointed in a person, right? To expect them to be something that they aren't. You will always be disappointed if that's how you operate. I wonder if sometimes the the reason we are disappointed by Jesus is because we are holding him to promises that he never made. I wonder if sometimes the reason we get frustrated with him is because we have expected him to answer some prayers that he actually never claimed to answer. I wonder if sometimes we get bitter at Jesus because we expect him to give us things that he has not promised to give us. 
So maybe the problem for us is not so much that we have trusted God to come through and that he's failed to do so. Maybe the problem is that we have expected God to be something and do something that he isn't and never claimed to do. Listen, as difficult as this may be for some to hear, God has not promised you a stellar career. God has not promised you a beach house or a mountain house or a lake house. God has not promised you a spouse. God has not promised you an amazing marriage. God has not promised you well-behaved angel kids at all times. He hasn't promised you a trouble-free or a conflict-free existence. God has not promised to make all your wildest dreams come true. And listen, God may very well choose to provide some of those things for you, and that's amazing when it happens, but he has not promised any of those things to you. God's promise to you is not that if you follow him, things will go well for you as a direct result. Just ask John the Baptist about that. Just ask any of Jesus' disciples. Just ask Jesus himself. That is not the promise that we're given. Rather, the promise that we're given in the scriptures is that Jesus is worth following regardless of how well things go as a result. God's promise is that he is enough regardless of what circumstance comes. His promise is that in this world there will be trouble but that we can take heart because he has overcome the world. His promise isn't that he will give us everything that we want, but rather that he will give us everything that we need and that over time he will shape and form our desires to want what he wants as a result. And his promise is that ultimately he will deliver a world in which there is no disappointment, there is no letdown, because all will be as it should be. God does not exist to give us what we want. He exists to give us something far better than that. And understanding that protects us from expecting God to be somebody he never claimed to be. It helps align our expectations, as it were, with reality, with the scriptures, and it keeps us from falling into unbelief and disbelief as a result of our disappointment. So I think that's one way to guard against doubt due to disappointment in our lives. By, by working to make sure that our expectations about Jesus are the right expectations in the first place. That helps a lot. That's a preemptive way of addressing it. But still, there are going to be moments where we are disappointed. There are going to be moments where we're frustrated, even angry at how things play out in our lives and how God could have allowed that to happen in that way. And all of that may very well still lead to doubt. So the question is, what do we do then? How do we deal reactively with doubt? Three things that I'd recommend, and we'll be quick on these before we end. First, I think in order to deal with doubt, you have to first be honest about what's behind the doubt. Be honest about what's behind the doubt. So you may legitimately have intellectual hangups when it comes to following Jesus. You may have questions about the trustworthiness of the Bible or the believability of some of the supernatural claims in it or any number of other things. And there, there are answers to those questions to be found. But I'll tell you right now, if behind the doubt is actually disappointment, 
If it's actually an experience that you've had, then no answers to those intellectual questions are actually gonna satisfy you because that's not the root of the doubt. So you've gotta be honest about the actual source of your doubt. And quite often, as we mentioned, the source of that doubt is disappointment. Something in life that has not turned out like you thought it would turn out. So be honest about what's behind the doubt. Second, take your disappointment directly to Jesus. Take your disappointment directly to Jesus. Sometimes, I think when we experience doubt or we're doing deconstructing or whatever the case may be, I think sometimes we tend to talk to anyone and everyone about our doubt except for the person who can actually do something about it. In Matthew 11, John is experiencing uncertainty about Jesus, so who does he ask about it? Jesus. He sends word to Jesus and asks Jesus the question directly. He takes that concern, that uncertainty straight to Jesus. So once you've been honest about the disappointment behind your doubt, let me encourage you to take that disappointment directly to Jesus in prayer. And I do mean directly. Have you ever read some of the prayers in the Psalms? You ever just read through them without any expectations of them, without kind of learning to read them through, you know, church and Christianese and all of that? Have you ever read some of the prayers in the Psalms? At one point, the psalmist asked God why God is so far from saving him and why he has abandoned him in his circumstances. At another occasion, the psalmist accuses God of making his life horrible and taking away every close friend that he has. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah, at one point, accuses God of tricking him into following him. The the psalmist and the prophets evidently had no issue taking their disappointment, taking their frustration, and even their outright anger directly to God in prayer and talking to him about it directly. So I I don't know where we got the idea that all of our prayers have to be pretty and proper and perfectly manicured in their theology, but we didn't get it from this Bible. Not if you're spending time reading how people prayed in this book. So why do we think we wouldn't be able to do precisely the same thing when we experience disappointment? Why do we think that we can't just talk to God directly about it? Listen, if you're disappointed, tell him you're disappointed. If you're frustrated, tell him you're frustrated. If you're angry at your circumstances, tell him you're angry at your circumstances. For one thing, it's not like God doesn't already know where you're at. And two, you might just find that rather than God being disappointed in you or rebuking you for it, you might just find that he meets you right where you're at with precisely the truth and encouragement that you need. I read once that uh, somebody said that prayer sometimes has to look like pounding your fist against the chest of God and letting him wrap his arms around you and bring you in close. That's such a helpful image for me in my life because it communicates to me that God is a good father, that he can handle the full brunt of our disappointment and our frustration and our anger, that he can handle all of that raw emotion and that it does not change his affections for us. What if we prayed like that? What if we brought our raw emotion, our raw disappointment directly to God? 
and processed it with him. I think that's the second thing we have to learn to do in our doubt and in our disappointment. Take your disappointment directly to him. And lastly, don't walk through doubt alone. Don't walk through doubt alone. Lastly, do not isolate yourself in your doubt. I don't know about you, I've found it to be a pattern in my life that the more I isolate myself from others, the more I start to believe things that aren't true and the more I start to invent problems that are not actually there. So I would just encourage you, once you've started being honest with God about your doubts and disappointments and what the true sources of them are, I would just encourage you to let some other followers of Jesus into it as well. Allow them to understand where you're at and what you're struggling with. Tell them what got you to the point that you're at now and help them know what they can do to help in the midst of it. I can assure you that if you were to show up to your life group this week and just spill out whatever disappointments you have about your life, whatever doubts and uncertainties you have, I can almost assure you, you are not going to get a rebuke or a mean look, or you're not going to find some sort of antagonistic reaction at all. You're going to find a group of people ready to hear you, understand you, and remind you of what is true, and a group of people who are going to walk with you through whatever it is and would be honored to. We do not believe at City Church that anybody has to be above doubt or disappointment because even the most impressive figures in the Bible were not above it. Rather, we want, we want to be present to you in it. So let us know how we can do that for you. So be honest about what's behind the doubt. Take your disappointment directly to Jesus and don't walk through doubt alone. I think if we can practice those things, we can deal with our doubt sort of reactively when it shows up. And I want to just mention one last thing. Uh, I hadn't planned on saying this, but just to help you see why it is so important for us to... Uh, get our expectations of who God is directly from the scriptures. Um, I went to a conference um, probably, man, it's been almost 10 years ago. It was a conference for church leaders and pastors. Um, a lot of people there, I think like 20,000 plus people there at that conference. And there were a number of different keynote speakers. You guys know how it goes, you know, like 10, 20 speakers. There were two of them particularly that stood out. The first message um, that one of them gave was he got up in front of this crowd of 20,000 churches and pastors and leaders from those churches, and his message was essentially um, that if you obey God and if you do the things that God has asked you to do, God will reward you as a result of that. That was, that was the message. The title was From the Promise to the Payoff. And in the teaching, he basically gave this example. The example was himself of how, you know, when he was in college, he uh, didn't have much money, but he like fed the other people that played football with him and he like cared for them and invited them into his apartment and, and spent time with them and poured into them. And, and the message, basically the point of him saying that was to the, at the end of his message, the point was, and because I did all of that, God has now given me success as a church planter and my church has thousands of people and it's growing rapidly. God rewarded me for my obedience from the promise to the payoff. The next uh, pastor got up there 
And he, uh, his message was quite different. His message was actually about John the Baptist. How John the Baptist did everything that God asked him to do lived in strict obedience to God, that he, he, he gave up on all kinds of visions of worldly success to do exactly what God asked him to do. And as a result of all of that, John gets thrown in prison and he gets beheaded and killed. And he basically just communicated, hey, we, we are not given the promise that this side of eternity, we will be tangibly war, rewarded for obedience to God. That's not the promise we're given. The promise that we're given is that on the other side of eternity, the reward is far better. And I say that not because it's important to, you know, nitpick their theology or condemn pastors for saying things or any of that. All I could think about, I, I hung out with a few people that I hadn't seen in a while who were at that conference, and I just was making conversation with them and um, just asked them, hey, who was your favorite speaker from the conference? What was your favorite message? And almost without fail, people said those two speakers. Those two speakers were my favorite ones. And I was just sitting there internally going, but they gave opposite messages. How could you say that those two were your favorite? I mean, maybe they were the two best communicators. But how could you say you enjoyed those messages the best out of any of the conferences? They literally said opposite things. And it made me realize how easy it is to believe a version of that worldly success message. I, I know a lot of you, I, I know that a lot of you are smart enough to know that if you turn on the TV and a televangelist is saying, send me $20 and God will make you a millionaire, I feel pretty sure that y'all can weed that out, right? Hopefully most of us can see right through that. But man, the reality is that sometimes that message is nowhere near that obviously wrong. Sometimes it sounds a lot like that pastor standing up in front of 20,000 pastors that are supposed to have discernment and saying, if you obey God, he'll give you a fastly growing church. I wonder how even if we think that this message has not stepped, in, has not stepped into our souls, that's not how you say the past tense of seat, but you guys know what I mean. I wonder if even though we think we don't believe that message that God will reward us with worldly success, I wonder if sometimes the reason we've experienced doubt and disappointment is because in little ways we do. I wonder if maybe we, we haven't believed that we'll become a millionaire as a result of following Jesus, but maybe we've believed that he'll give us a spouse, he'll give us success, he'll give us a nice house. I wonder if we haven't believed a more subtle version of it. And I'm here to tell you today that the message that we find in the scriptures, the message of hope that we get from Jesus is far better than any of that. It's far better than just treating God like a slot machine that if you put in the right amount, all of a sudden you'll get rewarded here on earth. The promise that we're given is that what God offers us is far better than anything the world could offer us, than anything the world could give us. And I want with everything in us for us to live our lives giving ourselves away for that message. That's my prayer for City Church. Let me pray for us to that end. Um, 
Father, I want to acknowledge that um, this is probably not the message that many of us want to hear. It would be far easier to stand up here and say that if, if you do the right thing, if you live in obedience to God, that he'll make everything go well for you. But God, the reality is that that's not how life works. And God, the, the reality is that you are far better than that. God, we, we thank you. We, we are grateful for the fact that you do not define success like we often do. God, that you don't define happiness like we do. You don't define reward like we do. God, the way that you approach those concepts is so far above and so far different than us. And so, God, our prayer is that in this moment, in this time together, you would begin to shape and form our desires to see the world like you do. That we wouldn't buy into the lie of success, of worldly pleasure, or of accomplishments, or of obtaining the approval of people, whatever it is for us. God, that we wouldn't spend our lives chasing after those things and expecting you to give it to us as a result of following you. That's not who you are. God, that would be cruelty to us if that's the way you operated. Instead, you give us something far better than any of those things. Your promises are far better than anything the world can offer us. And so, God, our prayer is that you would help us to follow you, not because of what you give, but that we would follow you because of who you are. But, God, that takes courage. It takes boldness. It takes faith. It takes trust in who you are and what you do. And it takes aligning our expectations to who you actually claim to be. And so God, in our time together this morning, I just pray that you would help us with that, that you would help us to see the world clearly, that you would help us to see ourselves clearly. And God, if there are ways that we have expected you to be somebody that you are not, God, would you set our eyes and our focus instead on who you are? And God, would that create worship and gratitude and thankfulness in us as a result? Would you help form us into your image to desire the things that you desire, to want the things that you want, and to be able to wrestle with doubt and disappointment without it defeating us? So God, would you give us your spirit? Would you fill us with your spirit to help with all of that? We ask this in your name for your glory. Amen.